The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hello, and welcome back to Unbanded Conversations. We're joined today by an exceptional guest, someone who is not from the BSV space. I think that's the first time we've done that on this show. Uh, but someone uh, whose message and focus and expertise are all highly relevant to what we're doing here. I'm proud to say we have Jeff Snyder, the CIO of Alhambra Investments on the show. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jack, for, for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Well, I want to set the stage for you a little bit uh, because I, you know, I, don't, I don't know that everybody's exactly on the same page, and I think I can sort of set us off on the journey the right way. So I'm going to attempt to do just that. Something that we've talked about through our work is the idea of a red pill where you know, it comes from the matrix. The idea is that people are living in a very carefully crafted narrative and there's this thing that is a red pill. You take it and all of a sudden that narrative sort of crumbles and you can't see the world the same way again. And I think what Jeff offers is a red pill within a red pill. And I know this is a bit of an abstract way to start, but let me add some concreteness to what I'm saying. When you're in an intro economics class, I think you're taught to see the Fed as maybe you're taught that it's a national bank. Maybe you're taught that it has some sort of responsibility for regulating banks. But I think the number one thing that we are all taught in that context is that the Federal Reserve uses monetary policy to influence interest rates, which can, you, can be used to stimulate the economy if the economy needs stimulating. And so it's the, the point of that monetary policy is to sort of even out this business cycle that we've seen and try and make that not happen, I guess. Uh, it's probably the, how I would describe that first view of the world. And then I think there's a red pill moment that happens for a lot of people where they're taught that, no, not, that's actually not what's happening. Uh, what the Fed is doing when they lower interest rates is sort of the equivalent of printing money. And that money printing, not only is it very self-serving, serving the Fed, the banks it serves, and also the U.S. government, but that it's also a very destabilizing force. And that the ultimate destabilization that's going to come from that is massive inflation. 
I think this latter view of the world is very prevalent in Bitcoin circles because in a lot of ways, it's a very self-serving narrative for Bitcoiners. You know, Bitcoin is positioned as a solution to this inevitable problem that we're going to have runaway inflation, the dollar is going to collapse, and we're going to need something, and Bitcoin is or can be that thing. And so, Jeff, I guess a question I would pose to you, <laughs> somewhat in jest, is does the Fed cure the economy or destroy the economy? Well, you know, I think your narrative is exactly right, at least as far as, you know, what we're all taught. You know, the, the expression in the 1980s was to fill in the troughs without shaving, the, shaving off the peaks. That's what monetary policy seeks to accomplish, which is, you know, we don't need recession. We'll use monetary policy to stimulate and influence so that we can avoid recessions or at least alleviate much of the downside. And that by doing so, because, you know, my, uh, Keynesian ec- economists think that recessions are unnecessary, we can, we can, avoid recessions or avoid the worst parts of recessions without sacrificing long-run growth potential. That's, that's exactly what the modern central bank seeks to do. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a noble-sounding enterprise, but the question is when the rubber meets the road, is that actually what happens? And that's where we start getting into, I like how you put it, a red pill within a red pill. First, we have to examine, does, does that actually happen with monetary policy? And secondly, you know, on a granular level, what does the Fed actually do? What, I mean, what, what, is, what does monetary policy actually mean? When you start peeling back some of these layers, what you find is, well, sure, that's what they intend to do, but the results are, as you point out, I mean, mixed. Um, I think we all know that the, uh, especially the last, couple, the last decade or so, last couple decades, haven't been quite so good on the economic front or even a financial front either. So already we're, we're into something's wrong. Then when you start going a little further into what the Fed actually does, it's, you know, the whole thing just kind of dissipates into the, into the ether. The Fed really doesn't do much of anything, uh, whether you want to call it money printing, creating uh, bankers, whatever. It's not inflationary because the Fed actually doesn't participate inside the monetary system itself. That's a big statement. The Fed does not participate in the monetary system itself. I think it's going to sound wrong to a lot of people. Can you elaborate on, or how could that be? Well, you know, we have to go backwards a little bit into the history of the monetary system over the last half century or so. And, you know, again, I know everybody's been taught the central bank is central, but, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, there was tremendous monetary evolution, things like euro dollars, uh, repo markets, things like, you know, wholesale interbank um, ledger money that began to replace the traditional depository way of doing things. And in the 60s and 70s, not just the Federal Reserve, but central bankers all over the world realized that banks around the world were doing these financial transactions in all these exotic formats that were making it impossible to define, let alone accurately measure money. You have discussions in the early uh, 1970s, FOMC, talking about how M1 and M2 were already obsolete and that how you know, they need to transition to an M3 that would probably be obsolete by 1975. So policymakers had a very big problem on their hands. If you can't define money, what do you do as a central bank? I mean, central banks are supposed to target monetary policy or target the money supply. They're supposed to, you know, mitigate the effects of extreme imbalances in the money supply. But if you can't, if you can't even define money, what do you do? So what the Fed did, and all, most central banks around the world did over the 1970s, 1980s, and forward is they decided they didn't have to define money. They didn't need to know anything about the monetary system. What they would do instead is to influence the behavior of the banking system. 
they'd raise the federal funds rate in the U.S. It's the federal funds rate. They'd raise the federal funds rate here and there, and then signal to the banking system whether they wanted them to create more credit or or uh, restrict credit in the case of hiking interest rates. And that's essentially what happened. The, the central banks, and I know I'm oversimplifying, glossing over a lot of details, but in, in a very simplified uh, uh, summation of the last 50 years, central banks transitioned, and we're talking a long time ago, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, away from a monetary-based policy system into an expectations-based policy system. And so when I say there's no money in monetary policy, it's literally the truth. The monetary system that evolved starting uh, back at that time evolved without a central bank within it. That's how, for example, we could have you know, the last 30 years of all of these inflation, all of these bubbles and asset inflation all over the place with the central bank, you know, the Federal Reserve's level of bank reserves in the system were minimal, never got to be more than 10 billion into a multi-trillion system that, by the way, expands, encompasses the entire global monetary system. And when we talk about how the, you know, Fed is supposed to influence the money supply, uh, typically we're talking about, you know, the Fed funds rate, which is sort of a, I guess people just sort of substitute in interest rates generally for the Fed funds rate, which is probably already an abstraction too far. But my question to you is, or I'll take a quick aside. I think that a very common issue people have in trying to understand complex systems is confusing correlation for causation. And I think we can say pretty succinctly that there's been a correlation between uh, federal reserve interest rate targets and the federal fund rates or federal funds rate. But in your view, is the Fed directly causing that or is it maybe responding to things that are happening naturally? Well, in some ways it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and that's, that's exactly what an expectations policy intends to create, right? If banks believe, and this goes, this goes back to Paul Volcker, uh, Paul Volcker's regime in the late, in the late seventies and early eighties, Based on what Volcker did trying to, to end the great inflation, which you know, everybody believed essentially that if the Fed went to extreme measures, it could do whatever it said it wanted to do. Therefore, everybody believed that, okay, if the federal funds target, say, 6% for a federal funds rate, therefore, the federal funds rate is going to be 6%. Why would you challenge the Federal Reserve? Because they can conduct open market operations to purchase or sell into the market U.S. Treasuries or other earning assets to make sure the market meets its market rate. And what what I'm saying is that, you know, from the history of uh, expectations policy all the way up until August 2007, the Federal Reserve didn't do much of any of that. The Federal Reserve didn't have to because if Alan Greenspan raised the the federal funds target a quarter point, the market simply adjusted to that target. It did all the work for him, which again is the entire point of an expectations policy. You get the market to do your work for you. You influence it by by creating this illusion that you don't fight the Fed, that if push comes to shove, we can do whatever we want to do, and you don't don't you dare do anything different. Don't don't you dare disagree with what we're doing. So when we're trying to you know establish causation versus correlation, yeah, it, it's it's strictly a correlation. The Fed said it wanted a, a federal funds target of X, and the market said, okay, that's what it'll be. But all that started to break down in August of 2007, where no longer were uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy taken as, as, as given. In fact, a lot of the asset, you know, a big part of the financial, global financial crisis back in 2007, 2008 was the market saying, okay, we need the Fed to come in here and do something. We need the Fed to stand up and, and actually enforce some money in monetary policy. And what we found out time and time again 
was that it couldn't because, again, the system had to evolve outside of the Federal Reserve's control. Well, the Fed apparently has this ability to print money. And depending on who you ask, printing money should either lower, rent, lower interest rates or raise interest rates. But you know, if they have this tool at their disposal, why can't they wield it? Why do they have to rely on expectations? Well, because again, you know, they can't define money. Therefore, how are they going to print? You know, let's let's be specific here. I mean, let's talk about what a, what is money in a modern modern monetary format. You know, Alan Greenspan, I think, said it best privately in an FOMC discussion in June of two thousand when he said, "We can't define money any longer. The quote proliferation of financial products has made it impossible to do so." And what he was talking about was the way in which these bank, with well, the banking system itself talks and transacts with, with one another through these, inter, these wholesale interbank channels. Essentially, what is money is anything that one bank will dream up that it can get another bank to accept. It's a liability on one side and an asset on another side. It's ledger money based on balance sheet accounting rules and the accounting paradigm that's in place. So the modern monetary system, again, that spans the entire globe, because this, this is a global dollar system, not a domestic dollar system, a global dollar system this dependent upon these what were once called long chains of interbank liabilities that spread all over the world. And there's simply all of these various exotic forms. I say simply, they're, they're very complex, exotic forms of bank liabilities and bank assets. And it can be anything from a simple deposit account. It could be anything from a future deposit account as, as a forward derivative. It could be a cross-currency basis swap. It could be a regular vanilla currency swap. It can be any number of things that don't actually require money in them. They're treated as monetary because they accomplish a financial or monetary goal so long as a couple banks get together and at the end of the day, all of their numbers on their computer screen agree with each other. Something monetary happens for reasons or for uh, methods that we, couldn't, we can't even see or comprehend. You know, that, it, it makes a lot of sense that what is money today is very complex and it would be close to impossible uh, are certainly impossible with today's technology for an institution like the Fed to measure it. But I think people would maybe come back and say, well, that's fine that we don't know exactly how much money exists, but isn't what the Fed is creating a form of money that could accomplish some of these goals? Yeah, and that's, you know, the byproduct of quantitative easing isn't easing. And nor, neither, it's not very quantitative either. If you, have to re, if you have to do it more than once, it couldn't have been very quantitative to begin with. <laughs> but the point, you know, the point you're making is right. The Fed does something, right? We know that. It has a balance sheet. It reports it every week in, in, in its weekly publication. And that amount, uh, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, has grown exponentially. And so, again, going back to expectations policy, Jay Powell is absolutely thrilled if people think that he's printing money because that creates inflationary expectations inside of what is growing to be a very big deflationary wave. And so from an expectations policy point of view, the more people don't try to investigate what the Fed does, the better off the Fed is. So what does the Fed do? Well, the Fed buys and sells assets from banks. That's all it really does. And so it creates a bank reserve as an offset for this, this purchase transaction. And so from the, point of, from the point of view of the banking system, it is selling an asset it already owns to the Federal Reserve in exchange for a deposit balance at the Federal Reserve or what we call bank reserves. That's all that's happened. It's an asset swap. And so at, 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 the, at its best, it's kind of a neutral proposition. I know people say, well, the Fed's balance sheet expanded. Well, the Fed's balance sheet expanded, big whoop. 
if the if if those those uh, bank reserves that are created as a byproduct of what the Federal Federal Reserve is doing in its asset purchase program, then it still requires activation and motivation on the part of the banking system to make that bank reserve into a usable monetary format. And that's what never happens. It didn't happen in, in the wake of 2007 and 2008, and it's not happening again. So in a lot of ways, when the Federal Reserve increases its balance sheet, that's not an inflationary signal. It's a deflationary signal. It's telling us that the Fed feels it must, it must have to be doing something because of what's going on inside the monetary system that we don't see. Jeff, it, might, it would definitely be helpful for me, as well as I imagine some of our listeners, if we could define inflation and deflation. It's something that I felt you know, more confident in what these words mean, say, six months ago. And the more I've learned and listened to you, the, the less conviction I have in what inflation really is. <laughs> Depends on how you want to define inflation. If you want to go full-scale Austrian and say it's the, it's the uh, devaluation of the currency – Again, that the problem that we have now is what is the currency? <laughs> you know, it's you know in very broad terms, inflation as we as we're we're made to believe in, in nowadays, it's a general rise in consumer prices, and that's a that's a decent definition. But you know, we can argue to the end of the end of the day whether the CPI or the PC def, PC deflator are are ways to accurately and, and precisely measure inflation, or whether those things are even possible. So, so to to be clear, that's your that's your favorite definition. Not necessarily any of the specific indexes, but some measure of how much people are paying for for goods and services. Yeah, exactly. You know, I okay. I, def- I definitely believe that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. So if it, you can look at that as a devaluation of the currency, because I mean, if we have to pay more for this for all of our goods, then you know the value of the currency is definitely falling. Um, but how it gets from one one place to the other is definitely a, a much more complicated topic and conversation. Yeah, I think the nature of this asset swap that's happening with the Fed and the banks which uh, have reserves at the Fed, it kind of gets to a disconnect between, I think, what typical or I guess normal people would think of as money and what's actually being used as money. Because when you hear the term bank reserve, I feel like it sort of echoes like a bank account. Like I have my bank account. There's money in the bank account. These banks have a bank account with the Fed. That's their bank reserves. So they have more money when they have more reserves. I don't use a treasury when I go to the grocery store to buy groceries. So that's not really money. No, a bank account is money. A treasury is not money. Uh, That maybe is an oversimplification, but I think it, it gets to why hearing that bank reserves have increased I think is so salient in people's minds is saying like there's now more money and we should expect some sort of consequence from that. Well, yeah. And again, it, we're, what we're missing from that discussion is all of the rest of the stuff that's taking place in the shadows. That's why I call it shadow money. It's, it's, it's shadow money for a reason. You know, bank reserves, you're great. It, it's, it's the very name is, is designed to get people to think of a monetary thing. I mean, it's all about managing expectations. But in point of fact, you know, let's assume that let, let's 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 even assume that bank reserves are a form of money. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. So the Fed just created, I think, about a trillion dollars in additional bank reserves. It's actually two trillion in buying the government. The federal government's balance increased by a trillion. So the net result is about a trillion dollars increase in bank reserves over the last five weeks. However, what we don't see is what's going on in the banking system. And what we what we can see by what happened in the marketplace, and I'm you know all marketplace, you know everything was a fire sale liquidation mess throughout much of March, first half of March at least. 
What we can tell from that is that money must have been tight in the hidden shadow spaces. Therefore, what we should, you know, even giving bank reserves the benefit of the doubt, what you should realize is that something has gone on in the hidden spaces, in the shadow money system, that was a massive subtraction. So even if the Fed has increased bank reserve by a trillion, and even if we consider them money, we also must infer that the amount of money the Fed is adding, this other kind of money the Fed is adding, probably isn't as much as been subtracted out of the shadow system. So already we're, we're, start, we're starting in a deposit. You know, I think that's, that's where people really start to, to, to get it wrong, is they think that the Fed is starting from zero. It's adding to the system. It's, it's adding into, into its own balance sheet, but its own balance sheet does not define the entire monetary system. And as I argue, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is a very minuscule part of the global shadow money system. So again, you know, what we're talking about is a problem in the hidden shadow money space where money kind of destroys or, or disappears from it. And the Fed comes in after that, that destructive behavior becomes visible in the marketplace and adds this other form of bank reserves in a very bureaucratic, rigid way that, you know, oh, by at the end of the day is more of a byproduct than effective monetary uh, addition. Yeah, so I think a component of this, which, or, or let me put it like this. Why would anyone want to lend money to the U.S. government? <laughs> <laughs> That's a loaded question if there ever was one. Uh, you know, I know where you're going with this. It's, 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 you know, it's, there are U.S. Treasury bonds, notes, and especially Treasury bills have utility outside the investment and credit characteristics of the issuer behind them. And I know, you know, we look at the U.S. government, it's the brokest institution that history has ever possibly conceived. And it's getting broker by the day in seemingly in an exponential way. Therefore, people, you know, bond vigilantes, where are you now? And people are trying to figure out, well, how the hell can the price of U.S. Treasuries continue to go up and up and up? And again, that gets back to the shadow. What's going on in the shadow monitors? The price of a Treasury bond, the price of a Treasury bill, they're telling you. Something abnormal is going on in the hidden shadow money system that's driving the participants inside the shadow money system into these various instruments, regardless of the creditworthiness of its issuer. And the reason is because there are utility in these securities that go beyond you know, strictly investing in, in U.S. treasuries. Uh, even at a negative rate, there's utility in a treasury bill. And that utility is repo collateral. You know, repo is the lifeline behind this global, this world-spanning monetary system. And you have to have collateral to participate in that system. And you also have, you know, at times, collateral isn't as easy as it seems to be. You know, it sounds like, okay, in a, in a repo, a repo is nothing more than a collateralized interbank loan between two counterparties, usually overnight. You post some collateral, I give you some cash, it's that simple. But it's actually much more complicated than that. And so there are times, again, when... The, uh, the value and utility of the safest, most pristine forms of collateral skyrockets. And it's, it's, it's exactly the same, same way, and it manifests in exactly the same way as any kind of bank run where the price of, you know, say, cash during the 1930s, early 1930s, skyrocketed too. So let me, let me do some summarizing so that we can sort of plunge forward. We have, we've, we've sort of stated that what the Fed is doing is, is not equivalent or even related to increasing the money supply. They're playing an expectations game. And these treasuries uh, whose prices are continuing to go down are... Prices are going up. Yields sorry, are going sorry, down. sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yields are going down, prices are going up. Prices keep increasing. And 
on its face, it seems very strange because uh, you know you're lending money to a institution that is going more and more into debt. But it can be explained when you know you you realize that these treasuries have utility beyond just you know the loan. Right, and their utility is based on the shadow money system, and so it's another bank centric uh, idea that goes in, you know, okay, why are these things happening? And it's not readily apparent to, you know, the layperson on the street. Why are these things, you know, what is the utility of a treasury bill? I, I don't understand why anybody, you know, as we saw in March, you know, some of the Asian trading numbers for treasury bills were, you know, minus 20 basis points in yield. And that doesn't make any sense. It really, why would you sign up to lose money? And the answer is because you want to survive until tomorrow and you need the best form of collateral to keep your, your balance sheet liquid. And so, it, you know, the treasury, and you know, not just treasuries, German bonds, JGBs, all these government bonds are a form of bank balance sheet utility, not, not investments. And when you start to realize that things like U.S. treasuries are a monetary, have a monetary utility, then, they, then you start to look at them beyond their investment characteristics, and it starts to make sense why these, why these things behave the way they do. I think it's a good time to maybe turn our attention to uh, the Great Financial Crisis or Global Financial Crisis one, and what what went wrong then, and or what's wrong? There, I think everyone feels like there's something wrong with the system, and something about this isn't working, and that was a major point of failure. So what happened then? Well, that's not an easy answer, but the, the easiest part of that answer is it wasn't subprime mortgages. Um, subprime mortgages were a very, very small part of the financial crisis. And it, get, you know, it gets back to what you were talking about earlier and the whole point behind cryptocurrency in the first place. You know, ever, I think there's the pervasive belief is that you know, this stuff is inflationary. But what really is driving a lot of, uh, of unease and angst is that the system that built up you know, this monetary evolution of shadow money, as I call it, was unstable. Not necessarily inflationary. It, is, it was inflationary up until August of 2007. But it was really unstable. And I think that's the sense that I think you and I and everybody else are sharing, even if they can't put their finger on it because this is a shadow system. Everybody realizes that it's an unstable system. So what happened in, starting in August, 2000, uh, August 2007 was that um, participants in the shadow money system, which were largely the, the financial system, banking system, started to realize the inherent instability of the way things were done. And oh, by the way, especially on August 9, 2007, it became clear the Federal Reserve really wasn't a part of it. And so in a lot of, you know, to oversimplify it, before then it was thought that this was a, a very low risk uh, system where you could just expand and, and do everything crazy and stupid on your balance sheet like subprime mortgages and that there would be no downside to it. As the housing bubble started to reverse late 2006 and throughout 2007, it began to dawn on people inside the system that that was all stupid and crazy, that it wasn't in, in fact in state unstable and therefore, the risks uh, involved in being a big part of that system were much larger than anyone had anticipated. Again, it didn't have much to do with subprime mortgages. It had to do with the fact that a shadow money system with no central bank backstop is an inherently dangerous place to operate, as, we, as was proved throughout the rest of 2007 and into, and into 2008. And what made it a global financial crisis was, again, the fact that this, mon this unstable monetary system that was falling back in on itself with no way to arrest the decline expand the entire globe. It wasn't just the U.S. system. It wasn't just Wall Street. It wasn't just irresponsible Goldman Sachs or Citigroup. 
It was all of these global banks that had participated in this euro dollar system for decades, thinking that there was no downside. And then when there, when there came to be a downside, it was lights out because there was no way to stop it from imploding. Everything there makes a lot of sense. But I think the one thing that maybe requires further examination is why this system is inherently unstable. Because you know you would think that the sort of participant banks, they are all trying to not, <laughs> not go bankrupt, make money. Uh, and if the system falls apart or is unstable, that, that hurts their business. So shouldn't their incentive be to act in a way that results in stability? Yeah, and that's that's you know that's the traditional capitalist system, right? Is a, there's a, a brutal discipline involved in keeping everybody in line. But if you start to believe again, going back to expectations policy of the Federal Reserve, that there's this thing called the Greenspan put, and couple that with the idea of moral hazard, you can eliminate a lot of that brutal discipline because people don't really believe there's any downside to it. And so that 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 softened the really hard edge that should have kept the global monetary system in line. Again, it's a global monetary system in line because, you know, everybody just, you know, a lot of confirmation and recency bias. Nothing bad had happened, therefore nothing bad will happen. No, oh, by the way, if something bad does happen, Alan Greenspan or Ben Bernanke will fix it for us. And so that's why a lot of that, that you know, some of the natural processes that should have been uh, a governor or a limit on the risk-taking behavior that took place during that time, they were missing sorely missing. And the thing is, you can't put the horses back in once they're let out of the barn. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once the participants realized that this thing was riskier, that their survival was at risk, you know, Bear Stearns and, and, and the like, they, they didn't want to do the same things that they did before. And so the monetary system, without the banks supporting it, began to contract. And they began to contract and fail in ways that everybody inside the system had pre- previously thought were strengths. I'll give you an example. Uh, repo was thought to be a redundant system to the unsecured wholesale interest bank market. That's what federal funds really is. Federal funds, or whether it's euro dollar deposits or any of these other types of unsecured interbank formats, everybody thought, well, if you get shut out of the if you get shut out of the federal funds market, you can go to the repo. You can go to the repo market. Well, you got to have collateral to go to the repo market. And prior to August of 2007, you could, om- you could use almost any collateral to do so. So if you have a portfolio of securities, you're funding them in the federal funds market on an unsecured basis or issuing commercial paper, or any kind of unsecured whatever, you've got that portfolio of securities at your disposal to go into a secured repo market. Because the repo market will always take security, it'll always take collateral. That's what everybody believed. But as it turned out, the collateral system imploded in on itself too. So uh, participants who used to be using subprime mortgage or even prime mortgage bonds as collateral in the repo market found that, okay, where I'm getting shut out of commercial paper, I'm getting shut out of federal funds, I'm getting shunned in euro dollar futures. All I've got is prime mortgage bonds in my inventory. I want to go in the repo market as my final backstop, and it won't accept my, re- my prime mortgage uh, bonds as collateral because those are now being repudiated too. And so, you know, it was a lot, of, a lot of things that were assumed to be true, that redundancies were a strength when it turned out that these redundancies were actually bottlenecks that created uh, snowballing problems upon themselves. And it all related to this idea that the system was inherently safe when in fact it was inherently unstable. And the reason it was unstable is simply, again, as you pointed out, 
that risk-taking behavior got out of hand for a lot of different reasons. And in that way, even though what we're talking about is shadow money and wholesale interbank stuff that doesn't sound very, uh, doesn't sound like it's, uh, most people understand what's going on, it was the same kind of behavior you witnessed throughout history in any kind of monetary expansionary period. So I think something you said earlier about banks being primarily concerned with surviving till tomorrow um, and that at the end of every day or every quarter uh, in, in varying capacities, everyone has to make sure that everything adds up. And as people's sort of uh, evaluation of risk changes from day to day, making everything add up can become easier or much more difficult at certain points. Now, if I know it's exactly true. It, it, you think that it should be very easy if you're running a portfolio of securities, which, you know, banks, modern day banks, especially larger banks, are nothing more than hedge funds. They're not banks in the traditional sense. And that's probably, you know, another topic of discussion, if not today, then some other time where, you know, banks are not the way they used to be. They're not just strictly depository institutions where they take in, you know, stacks of cash and put it in a vault and fractionally uh, multiply those, those, those uh, cash reserves into deposit liabilities and loan assets. That's not the way banking system works. You know, when I'm saying, when I talk about wholesale shadow money, it is not just a monetary evolution and revolution. It is a banking evolution and revolution too. And it took place a long time ago. You know, that's what Lehman Brothers was. That's what AIG was. That's what Bear Stearns were. These were not depository institutions. These were these modern wholesale funded types of banks. Well, these banks have this very complex operation to sort of execute on a day-to-day basis. And so they probably, and this maybe is uh, part of why evaluations of risk can change very suddenly, they're not able to think too far into the future in terms of how things could change adversely against them. Do you think uh, the fact that U.S. treasuries are the most liquid form of collateral sort of spells some kind of huge future threat for the system? Not specifically. You know, I think that's a good point because a lot of what we're talking about here in terms of how banks manage their balance sheet and how they construct their balance sheet is all about looking at future risks. Now, whether they can do it accurately and reasonably is another question entirely because history has shown that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to model, especially risks, jumps in risk. The old jump, uh, risk jump diffusion model from the 1970s has still been proven uh, to be an accurate way of describing the way the world as it is. And so it's very, but you're right, you know, banks are always looking at future volatility, modeled volatility, implied volatility. It's always, it's always what they're looking at. And right now, um, you know, U.S. Treasury liquidity risks are probably last on their, <laughs> last on the, the last line in the catalog of things they're thinking about because there are so much, so many more uh, immediate and apparent things for them that would impede balance sheet construction and fluid balance sheet dynamics today than that would be. Yeah, I think talking about things on this scale is very challenging because if, in a sense, I think what a lot of people who are, you know, I guess less uh, optimistic about the future value of these treasuries what they're sort of implying is that if that is the most liquid collateral and the safest collateral in the system, then the system is at some point going to be operating with a set of collateral that's worth a lot less than it's worth now. And I think that's, well, I don't know if that's true, 
But I also think that if it, if it were true, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around the idea of everything being worth less all of a sudden and what that actually means in the real world in terms of how we go about living our lives and what is produced and what people's expectations of their own wealth and their future wealth and their future prospects are. It's just a really difficult leap to make in terms of thinking about the economy and thinking about how money in our monetary systems impact that. I don't know if that's, I, I admire you for your diligence and clarity on just describing the system as it is, which is clearly not easy to do and also not something that many people who are outside of the system or maybe even inside the system bother to do. And so I think, uh, you know, in, in that sense, what you're, what you're offering without even maybe sort of prognosticating on how or if this system ultimately implodes, uh, it, it's a huge value you're adding. But I, I am curious, I guess, to sort of dip our toes in that part of the world or part of this conversation, which is <laughs> how, I mean, if, if there's inherent instability, how does that ultimately manifest and like, where do we go? From here, <laughs> well, the one thing it does it drives up the value of U.S. Treasuries and government bonds. I know it's it's almost contradictory and counterintuitive, but that's you know <laughs> the way the system is designed is it gives these things primacy. And it's not necessarily primacy because the U.S. Treasury says so, or the president, or the Congress, or anything like that. In the repo market, let's just consider this as a very narrow case of the repo market. In the repo market, the bank utility of collateral is all about the, the counterparty who has cash, what will they accept as the best form of collateral? And if you're lending cash and accepting collateral in return, all you care about in the collateral that you're accepting in return are the liquidity characteristics of tomorrow should you have to sell that collateral if your counterparty defaults on the cash loan. And so you know, we don't care about whether the, the government's broke or when it's going to go broke if, or if it, can, if, it can value, if it can issue treasuries 13 or 15 or 20 years from now. All the, all the repo market cares about as far as collateral is, is there a liquid market for tomorrow where if I have to sell the collateral because you've defaulted on the cash part of the loan, I can get a reasonable bid for or at least a reasonable price for the collateral as I sell it. And right now, the marketplace the most liquid markets are all government bond markets. It doesn't matter that the governments are all broke. The markets are all liquid, and they're liquid in, in crisis tested, even the last, even, uh, last month. OTR treasuries were perfectly liquid throughout the most of the crisis. In fact, they're the only place that was liquid throughout the crisis. So the more unstable the system gets, the more we question about shadow money, the more we wonder what the, what the hell the Federal Reserve is doing, it drives up the price of those forms of repo collateral. So, Jeff, if I'm understanding you correctly, then when or if this, you know, kind of pops, it's going to be especially fast and violent, right? Because it's basically going to, I mean, that that's the characteristic of most bubbles, but it seems like because of the repo markets and central banks' role in perpetuating the existing repo system, it seems like it's going to be kind of like, Treasury bonds are going to maintain and increase their value until kind of like one day it all massively declines even more quickly than other bubbles. Would that be your your characterization? Are you talking about the treasury market, the decline in the treasury market? Yeah, I'm not not just for U.S. treasuries, but to a lesser degree also government bonds of other countries. 
No, I think we have a pretty good example in the Japanese case. And again, it's, 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 it's a pretty good analog. I know people don't like comparing Japan to everyone else, but yet here we are following along the Japanese case because everything is that similar. It's not necessarily the case, and I don't expect it to be the case, where you see treasury bonds, the treasury market just blow up. And that treasury bonds at some, you know, some either near or intermediate point in the future are no longer priced and negotiable. In fact, in the same way as the U.S. dollar, you know, I, this is an un- unstable system that needs to end at some point, but that doesn't necessarily mean the value, the exchange value of the U.S. dollar goes to zero. In fact, I would argue it's the other way. Um, the U.S. dollar goes up. That tells you that there's, an Ill- there's a liquidity problem in the shadow money system, the global part of the shadow money system. And so you can envision a scenario which is playing out right before our eyes where as, you know, closer to its end point, and again, I'm not saying we're close to the end point, but just hypothetically speaking, closer to its end point, the value of the dollar skyrockets as does the value of U.S. treasuries. That what ultimately fails is not the treasuries or the dollar, but it's the monetary system itself that demands some kind of intervention that takes place before any of those kinds of, you know, scenarios that you just talked about actually happen. In fact, I would say that's probably the likeliest case. Uh, you write, the rising dollar is nothing more than a, a really, it's, it's kind of a squeeze, a monetary squeeze on the global economy. And so as long as the, the illiquidity, the bank system, the bank-centric system continues to squeeze, uh, you're going you're gonna to have the dollar go up and you're going to have the value of U.S. Treasuries go up too. What potential catalysts do you see for that system to stop? <laughs> well, you know, I would have thought it would have, it would have been the global financial crisis in 2008, but that, that didn't prove to be the case. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's almost more of a political or social question than it is one of money and finance. You know, here we are. It's, it's April of 2020. And we've had, we're experiencing a second global financial crisis, and yet hardly anybody's talking about these things. So it, it's really, to me, it's a level of, how long are people going to be able to hang in there and put up with this kind of dysfunction and, and the costs of this dysfunction, which are, you know, in a deflationary scenario, they're always in the labor market. You know, John Maynard Keene was right about that. The, the, worst evil, the worst monetary evil is deflation because of what it does to the labor market. But yet we've had, we've had this labor participation problem in the U.S. and around the world that goes back to 2007 and 2008. And yet there, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's still tolerance for, the Federal Reserve, there's still people who are willing to believe that Jay Powell is actually printing money and that he's got everything under control. Um, and so I, I think it's more of a question of at what point does the social and political instability, which we've already seen bubble to the surface, you know, even before this year, where those things become too much to manage that people start asking the right questions about, you know, what does the Federal Reserve actually do? Is it, in, is it inherently what it says it is that we start to get to pot- potential solutions uh, before it gets to be too bad. That makes a lot of sense. And I hope it doesn't come, or let me posit that I think an alternative way that I'm at least optimistic is an option, is that some sort of alternative system develops and we see more of a diminishment of the sort of importance or, or at least sort of, even if the internal logic of the current system perpetuates, that it diminishes in importance and value relative to some other system that could emerge. Yeah. To me, that I, would be the most peaceful way of resolving 
this? Uh, that's the that's the question right there. I mean, you hit the nail exactly on the head. This is really a two part process. You know, I'm really I'm what I do is really the first part, which is trying to get people to identify and understand the problems that exist today. Let's say I, you know, in isolation that, that, that we're successful at that and we get people to understand the Fed's not really a central bank. It's more of a domestic bank authority. It's very limited in its utility. You know, why is the repo market such a mess? What is wrong with the banking? Let's say we accomplish all of those goals. Well, then what? <laughs> you know, it's not, okay, we've got, we've got a system that's broken. How do we fix it? And you're exactly right. Um, the other part of that is where do we go next? What, what is there that can potentially take the place of an unstable bank-centered shadow money system? And I think the answer is a, the exact opposite of all those things. You know, a, a very visible, transparent monetary system where the rules are front and centered and very well-defined so that, every, you know, we shouldn't have to spend an hour explaining just the first chapter in the book on money. You know, it should be, a, you know, that's, that was one of the most elegant parts of the gold standard, the classical gold standard, was that everybody knew what the rules were. You had a gold coin in your pocket and you didn't need to anybody to explain to you what the hell monetary policy was. That's what we need to work toward, an open, transparent system, but that can mimic some of the good parts of the current system, which is fluidity, efficiency, uh, the way that it can easily translate these various disparate systems all over the globe. That's what made the euro dollar the world's reserve currency is the fact that it could intermediate between very different systems and allow globalization and trade. The problem is it did it in the shadows. It did it without any kind of regulation or oversight, which meant it could easily get, go way too far as it did. But now the pendulum has swung, swung too far in the other direction where we had, you know, before 2007, it was a hidden shadow money system that was doing too much to now we have a hidden shadow money system that's doing way, way too little. So, you know, it's okay. We got to recognize the instability of the shadow system, but then we have to have, you're right, an alternative to that system. And in fact, having an alternative, a realistic viable alternative makes it that much easier to transition and maybe even that much more likely. To bring this to Bitcoin for uh, a second, it's, it's actually very ironic to me, which a lot of things in Bitcoin are, which is that the, the sort of common view of Bitcoin is that it's very, very inefficient. But on the bright side, there's only 21 million of them. It's, I mean, actually, if you break it down into its component parts, it's 21 quadrillion, I think. But, right. you know, colloquially, we, we say 21 million. And therefore, what the, the sort of playbook is that even though we're not going to actually transact on Bitcoin and we're not going to take advantage of the Bitcoin ledger, at least we have this Bitcoin thing that can sort of go into the vaults of central banks the way gold once did. And we can return to a sound money future where... We are, uh, if you are a Bitcoin holder, you're very rich. And to me, well, the, the fundamental flaw in that thinking is thinking that Bitcoin is inefficient. But the second flaw is that now you're sort of setting yourself up to replay history. Not that that would ever happen, that, out, that sort of scenario. But if it did, you know, look at what happened to a gold standard. Look at what happens when things can move into, a, move into the shadows. I don't see any real reason to think that like, there's anything special about Bitcoin as a scarce asset that would lead to a different outcome. To me, what has promise is the fact that we have a highly efficient but highly transparent, in fact, fully transparent system that can serve as a new basis where you can actually see what's happening. And, and that's the real value. I think the, you know, the sound money component 
uh, the predefined rules in terms of what is Bitcoin, how many Bitcoins are there, when are they going to be mined? You know, that's an important component. But without that transparency that comes from having a highly efficient ledger that can be used to record transactions, not just the transactions of Bitcoin, but also things like the transactions of equities and derivatives and bonds and, and anything, the, the ability to actually look at the system, at least if you want to look at the system or, you know, some of these things can go into the shadows through encryption, but to a lesser degree, but also there can be political will to keep things out of the shadows. And, you know, if you're not using encryption or at least limiting the use of encryption, then you're able to get a really, really strong and complete view of what's actually happening, which is something that's been, you know, I think sorely lacking and has led to a lot of instability. Yeah, I think you're right because uh, as soon as you get to even just a little bit of shadows, there's always going to be the incentives for going too far, or stretching rules or taking it to the limit. And if you have no ability for the system to reject that kind of behavior, it will simply grow and grow and grow. I mean, the Austrians call it Cantillian effects and recognize that, 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 that for a reason. If you privilege banks and society in, in, in the monetary system, they're going to benefit first and foremost. I mean, that's exactly what we've seen with the shadow money system. The rise of the, the global bank over the, you know, from the 1950s, 60s forward to the middle 2000s was, you know, it was unstoppable. And the reason it was unstoppable was because of the fact that nobody really knew what the hell was going on. And I think you're right. The answer to correcting that isn't, isn't necessarily limiting the supply of money. It's in hard, fast rules about transparency, predictability, and, you know, I would argue also easily understood. That, that's, to me, that was the best part of the classical, classical gold system, you know, because the monetary system and the gold system wasn't fixed either, but it was simple. It was trans, well, largely transparent and nothing's perfect, but because it was simple and transparent, it allowed it to do all of the things that, you know, sound, all of the positive effects of a sound money system. And that's, I think, what needs to happen. You know, what replaces the euro dollar system should be the exact, well, not necessarily the exact opposite, but the exact opposite of its worst qualities, which are an open and transparent system. And you can see it in things like repo collateral. Like I said, you know, the repo market, and especially on the collateral side, is far more complex and dizzying and hidden and shadow than even what goes on in the, these other marketplaces. And you can see where a block, you know, I, Bitcoin, blockchain, blockchain technology, I, you know, I, I'm not the biggest expert in those kinds of things. But I can see where those things would be valuable in bringing some of these collateral issues to daylight, like, you know, proving provenance of a piece of collateral. It's, it hasn't been borrowed from X, Y, or Z. Or it hasn't been transformed. It hasn't been repledged or rehypothecated. You know, that kind of a thing where we could create a sort of, quote unquote, clean repo market as opposed to the dirty, hidden repo market that operates today. And you have to think, you know, Gresham's Law over time, this clean, open, transparent repo market that's operating on some kind of blockchain technology where everything is all out in the open will win out and it will drive everything out of the dirty repo market. And then we could transition to something that is more of a sound money, even a sound money repo market. <laughs> it maybe is as, as, as absurd as that sounds. No, I don't think it's absurd at all. And I actually think Bitcoin can be used even to just promote the sort of health and transparency of the existing system. It doesn't have to be Bitcoin denominated. Bitcoin as a database, what it provides is a public, time-stamped, immutable record of ownership. And you can do with that what you will. You know, the first use case was for tracing the ownership of Bitcoin tokens. 
but you can trace anything with that technology. And so, you know, tracing U.S. treasuries would be, you know, an obvious application or having some sort of on-chain central bank digital currency, which you can trace the ownership of. You know, there's a lot of possibilities. So it doesn't have to be a world with prices denominated in Bitcoin to be a financial system built on Bitcoin. Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting point because in one sense, that's what this euro dollar system already is. You know, it's just denominated in U.S. dollars, but there's no U.S. dollars behind it. They would just call it U.S. dollars and using the U.S. dollars allows all of these bank nodes, which are nothing more than a, net, a computer network, a computerized you know, global bank financial network, to translate and talk to each other. Um, we just denominate in U.S. dollars because that was the easiest thing to do, given the way that the system had transformed out of the Bretton Woods paradigm. So, you know, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the euro dollar is like a cryptocurrency. It is a distributed ledger where all the, the good guys are these banks that operated within it. And it is, you know, to some extent backed by central banks. But it's really, you know, economist Paul Samuelson in 1971 was right. He called it benign neglect. Central bankers and, and government finance ministries, the U.S. Treasury Department, they've all kind of turned a blind eye to how the monetary system works because they were convinced that it just works. And so long as it works, what do we care whether it's denominated in U.S. dollars or not? I mean, yes, there's a privilege to having a denomination, but it's not what everybody thinks, and it's more of a burden than anything else. So there is, you know, I think we've already moved, whether people realize it or not, we've moved in that kind of a cryptocurrency, you know, ledger technology direction a long time ago. And it may not be as difficult of a, a transition as it may seem right now because most people don't realize that this shadow money system exists anyway. Yeah, and unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, I guess at the same time, I think what it's ultimately going to take is consumer demand. People are going to have to want to see what's happening or want the ability to see what's happening. And I think we're very far from that. And I also don't have very much faith in sort of a top-down government-led initiative to make what's happening in the financial system extremely transparent. To me, that seems unlikely. It seems like it has to be something that comes from citizens and comes from you know, consumers of the financial services who, I guess, need to hear messages like this to understand that being able to see what happens in these shadows is very important to their long-term well-being. Yeah, you know, you're right. There's, there's a tremendous amount of institutional inertia, and there's massive incentives for the status quo. And in fact, everything is designed to maintain the status quo because you know, I mean, we don't have to assign nefarious motives behind all of these people. You know, the Federal Reserve isn't evil. It's just wrong. You know, they're trying their best as, according to their own paradigm and their own way of thinking. They actually think that, you know, hey, we're, we're trying. We're, we're trying to keep the system, as, uh, maintain the system because we believe this is the best possible outcome. They really believe that. I mean, Ben Bernanke was a really smart guy. He's just He was so rigidly ideological, he couldn't see that it wasn't the best way of doing things and that the Federal Reserve is not what he thought it was. So, you know, you're right in the, in the sense that you know, a top-down kind of a solution is probably not, uh, not a, a, a most probable case here, and that it's going to have to come from someplace else. But it's not necessarily the case where it can't be top-down. Maybe the top-down has to be driven by some kind of external pressure. Um, but, you know, we saw it with Bretton Woods. I mean, whether you, whatever you feel about Bretton Woods in 1944, 
yeah, it didn't last all that long, but for, for its own purposes, it was, it was a top-down solution. And, and, and it was a, a rather elegant one, given the, the constraints of that period. So, it, you know, I don't want to shut off the top-down solution completely. I mean, we could have a Bretton Woods 2 tomorrow if we can get people to understand the nature of the problem as it actually exists. But I think you're right. It's not going to be, it's not going to be Jay Powell and, you know, Christine Lagarde who are going to get together and say, hey, we need, to resu- we, need to, we need to reform the entire global monetary system. They're going to be the ones that have to be told, hey, we're doing this with or without you. Exactly. It could be a top-down solution, but I think it's unlikely to be an initiative that comes from the top. There's almost no chance that it's going to be an initiative from the top. It's got to come from somewhere else, and, and it's, it's probably not going to be – I mean, the way I, th- I think that economics, especially central bank monetary ideology, is so rigid that it's probably going to require a complete you know, throwing them all out and starting you – know, redefining what a central bank job actually is – and probably you need to, you know, start from scratch in terms of those kinds of things too. So you know, I don't think Jay Powell or his successor are going to be involved in, you know, Euro dollar 2.0 or whatever comes next. Uh, it's not going to be these people. Probably for the best. Yeah. Well, their, their track record is not very enviable <laughs> when you sit and analyze it again, you know, I think that's you know, why, why are we sitting here having this conversation is because, you know, your audience knows this and my audience knows that something isn't right. People have known, and it's not just, you know, it's not just COVID-19. Obviously, it's not just the, the re- most recent events. Ever since 2007, something isn't right. You know, why is the labor participation rate so low in the United States? What is going on? There's something going on, and nobody seems to have any answers. And furthermore, nobody seems to want to ask any questions. We're just supposed to take it on faith that all of these things are being covered when, you know, time and time again, we see all of these oddities. Why are U.S. Treasury prices continually going through the roof? It doesn't make any sense. So we can tell there's something wrong. We can tell the system is unstable, but, you know, most people lack the ability to, to or the framework or the way to, the ability to interpret what they see around them and put a name and a face on what that instability actually is. And that gets back to institutional inertia. I mean, central banks have a vested interest in people not understanding what they actually do. Well, Jeff, I, I don't want to take too much more of your time. And I also think uh, to continue to fill in the details, I would point anyone who's uh, listening to head over to check out the market research. Uh, you tend to post almost every weekday, if not more than once. And what's the link where people can find your work? You just go to alhambrapartners.com and, you know, I usually have a couple of uh, pretty detailed posts filled with charts every day. You know, some of it's about current, current topics, what's going on in the world, and some of it's more of these detail, in-depth dives into the shadow money world. It's an excellent resource, and I think especially if uh, you like visual aids, you guys have uh, a lot of great visual aids there, which can sort of add some pictures and graphics which can help to illuminate some of these topics and Jeff, you, you know, you're about a month into, I would say, a new initiative called Eurodollar University. What can you tell us about that? Well, Eurodollar University intends, when we get it up and running and get it completely going, uh, it, it intends to fill in these blanks, to be in a one-stop resource to all of these shadow money. And call it Eurodollar University because Eurodollar is this global offshore U.S. shadow money marketplace. So. As we get going, there's a couple of people who I'm working with, including those at Alhambra, um, to try to give, you know, give people the resources, the ability, the framework to understand all of these various pieces that you know, 
point to this instability in this global system? Well, we'll be among your customers. And I would point everybody also to uh, Making Sense, which is not the podcast done by Sam Harris, who we will not speak further about. Uh, It's a better Making Sense about these topics. And so check that out. Zach, anything else you want that you think we should touch on? I, I guess just one question for you. you know, it's, it's kind of a speculative question, but you know, assuming you take take our word for it, at least for the purpose of this question, that you know, there's a blockchain right now that is scaling really fast, and that in a number of years we'll be able to you know very cheaply, securely, and in a very fast manner be able to say store kind of all the potentially all financial transactions of repo markets of treasury markets if you take us take us at our word that that technology exists now and will continue to improve what would your kind of recommendation be for say our average listener to try to make that happen i know it's a big question and we talked a little bit about how it's going to probably take a long time it's going to be hard it's not going to be quick but you know for for those of us that both care about you know Bitcoin's rise and kind of what a world where we're storing data on a, a ledger where we can really trust the information and that also care about having more transparent, uh, a more transparent government and understanding of our global financial system. You know, what, what can we do? I'm not sure what we can do at an individual level other than, you know, act skeptically about what's going on. And by the way, you know, I think, I think you guys are exactly right. Whether that technology exists today or not, I mean, that's a question. But I have faith and I actually believe that that technology will exist. When, I don't know. I mean, you guys probably know that better than I do. And you probably you definitely have a better idea of what that looks like. But I have a tremendous amount of faith that that will actually happen at some point. And I also have a, a tremendous amount of faith that that will be an elegant, maybe not seamless transition, but offer a, a, maybe the best opportunity to transition from where we are now into something that follows that is stable. Because I think that would allow an open and transparent, much more stable system to exist down the road. Now, how do we push for that kind of a transition from one place to another, you know, other than you know, lighting your torches and getting your pitchfork and running on down to Washington and, and picketing the Mariner Eccles building? Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm not sure how you do that, uh, other than to, 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 to continue to question uh, what you're hearing in the financial media or what these guys, these central bankers continue to say, and um, you know, get together and encourage other people to read and think, and not just swallow the uh, the, the red pill within the red pill kind of a, a, of a program. You know, to to really think about these things and to understand that you know your intuition, this idea that something isn't right and hasn't been right for a while, is probably a correct one. Your gut instinct is you should you should probably think about that. And the more educated people become about shadow money, I think the more abhorred, abhorrent it will be to them. Because it is, in a lot of ways, it, it violates all of the basic tenets of money and finance and banking, and yet it's been allowed to grow and fester and, and then you know, fall apart for a very long period of time. And it does impact everyone's daily life, and it impacts not just through you know, the stock market or something like that. It's, it impacts the global economy, the lack of economic growth the last 12 years across the entire world. And there has to be a way for us to be able to push forward into something outside of that. Just, I'm not sure how you do that on an individual basis other than education and uh, self-education and knowledge. Thank you, Jeff, so much again for coming on. Uh, sure. We have a lot of respect for what you're doing. I, I see echoes of you know, 
we're on sort of a mission to try and teach people that Bitcoin is actually efficient. And it's sometimes I think there's a lot of self-repetition, but you know, it's just important to keep putting that message out there because you never know who's going to hear it when. And so we appreciate you retracing your footsteps with us uh, here today. Yeah, I think we're, we're actually coming at the same thing from maybe different directions, which is always good because when you get together, you can, you can do much more things together than you can by yourself. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank yeah. you guys for listening, and we will talk yep. to you guys again soon.